What's up, bingers? Today I'm joined by an award-winning activist and writer. She's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and has created an amazing podcast dedicated to highlighting the many legal battles for indigenous rights that are occurring all the time in the United States. Battles that most of us don't even realize are going on. She is the host and creator of the This Land podcast. Please welcome Rebecca Nagel. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. All right. Well, I'm joined today by Rebecca Nagel, who uh, Rebecca has informed me so that after one look at me, she knew that if she told me it, it rhymed with bagel that I wouldn't re- I wouldn't forget it. And I've got big fan of bagel. So I got that uh, <laughs> down. And and Rebecca, you're the host of the This Land podcast, which we're going to get into and get into the case that you're covering right now. But you have a super interesting background that that I want to talk about. I mean, you you have you're you're an award-winning activist, writer, public speaker. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um Sio Nagar, uh Gohin Dawadon, Jaleka Yatli, Gaila, uh Joplin, Missouri, Awatessa Dola, um Digagi Gayelage, Michael, Sarah, Dun Don, Agilis, excuse me, Agilis Jagesa, Francis Polson, Du Don, Jihatladit. Tlaiko Utasa. Sorry, I got a little uh, frog in my throat there. Um, but yeah, uh, my name is Rebecca Nagel. I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. I grew up in Joplin, Missouri. Um, and the Cherokee side of my family, um, where my grandma grew up, is um, a little community called Honey Creek, uh, which is north of the town called Jay. I currently live in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Um, I moved here about four years ago um, to work for my tribe, Cherokee Nation, and have uh, stayed on as a freelance uh, journalist and writer um, living in eastern Oklahoma. And so my background is that I um, came to writing and to journalism through a circuitous route. I was in Living in Baltimore, where I was doing community organizing around racial and economic justice and also um, for the issues of violence against women, namely um, sexual assault and domestic violence. And so I had done some local and some national organizing around that issue um, in collaboration with some really great organizations like the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. And had always kind of used writing in that context. Um, so had written op-eds or written, um, even helped other people who were advocates or personally affected by issues write and place op-eds and always seen the media as a tool, but hadn't really seen or hadn't really thought of myself ever as a writer outright. And I, as a just kind of on a whim, wrote a few articles as a freelancer and saw the impact that they had, and then became more and more interested in writing on its own. And so 
Yeah. And so I, I really started writing in earnest and with more focus about four years ago. And then the rest is history. <laughs> and, and your focus has been in, in kind of sexual assault. And, and you're a survivor yourself. Is that right? Is that kind of what drew you into that space? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I felt like as a survivor, I always got this message that, you know, I was what was broken. I was what needed healing and work. And so, you know, my job was to go to therapy and get counseling and work on putting my broken self back together. And for me, that message, well, well, therapy and other things and counseling, like definitely helped me contextualize the abuse. I think for me, it was also really unsatisfying on a level because I didn't see the abuse as a result of my own brokenness, but rather a society and a culture and, you know, structure and system of laws that makes abuse and rape normal, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I found that activism and advocacy was really part of my own healing journey to be able to create something that was larger than what I survived. And so I, I definitely arrived at it as an outgrowth of my own path as an adult of trying to make sense of what happened to me. And in, in, in that space, you've taken some some big swings. Uh, I read that in was it in 2012, you co-created a website called Pink Loves, Pink Loves Consent. Uh, can you talk about that? Because you, you, you actually got tangled <laughs> up with Victoria's Secret on that one. Yeah, we did. We did take on uh, <laughs> Victoria's Secret. So at the time, Victoria's Secret was marketing. It's uh, It had a line, basically. Um, I mean, not to sound too flippant, but it was kind of like their Happy Meal version of lingerie. They had this line called Pink Loves Consent, where they were trying to get college students, high school students, and I would say like girls who are even younger than that, you know, loyalty to Victoria's Secrets was really marketed towards young women and women who are having some of their first sexual experiences and learning about their bodies and sexuality and what healthy relationships and sexual encounters and consent looks like. And within that line, they had some really, um, there was a lot of writing on the underwear, like these little slogans, and some of them were very problematic. So there was one that said no in really big letters. And then underneath that, it said peaking. And then there was another um, pair of panties that said stop in really big letters. And then underneath that said staring. So it's kind of teaching these uh, young customers that words like no and stop in the context of sex aren't words that are hard boundaries that need to be respected. But they're these like muddy words that are really about flirting, um, which we thought was deeply, deeply problematic. And so we created a fake website um, with a spoof line of underwear Um, that said things like no means no and consent is sexy um, to promote um, kind of like a pop culture version of healthy sexuality. You know, I think so much of pop culture, whether it's, you know, Disney movies (laughs) or song lyrics or slogans on underwear, teaches us different aspects of rape culture that make, um, you know, not respecting people's boundaries, not asking for consent you know, elements of abusive relationships like possessiveness and jealousy makes all of that seem normal versus modeling um, healthy relationships and a culture of consent. And so it was kind of this way for people to envision what would it look like to have a pop culture 
that modeled consent rather than modeling Mm -hmm. rape culture. And so, yeah, we spoofed Victoria's Secret and then got angry letters from their lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) That's a win though, right? When you you start getting letters from Victoria's Secret. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Like you made some waves at least. Yes. I want to back up a little bit. I bet I was just intrigued by what you were saying and I wanted, and I forgot I wanted to back up. Uh, When we first, when we just first started our discussion, um, it, it sounded to me, unless I just don't hear correctly, that you were speaking in a different language. Can you exp- can you explain what you were saying there? Yeah, yeah. Um, it probably would have been more clear if I um had taken a sip of water first. But yeah, I was just introducing myself <laughs> in Cherokee, um, which I just said uh the names of my parents and my grandparents and where I grew up and where I live now, which is um generally you say kind of where you're from and who your family is, and then people um know where you who you are and how to place you oh that's amazing so uh, i wanted to ask you so we're, we're a little you know we're, we're a month month late i guess but um did your world's it seems to me at least on paper like your world sort of collided um a month or so ago with the whole uh gabby petito case um you know and, and one you're dealing with in my opinion what was pretty clear um, a sexual abuse situation, domestic abuse situation, uh, and the fact that the case, while Gabby, of course, was a white girl, um, it, it 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 somehow drew the lack of attention to the missing and murdered Indigenous women. Drew so it, her case drew attention to the lack of attention, if that makes sense, um, where people kind of realized, like, hey, why are we all only paying attention now? Did you file that case much at all? And and do you have any thoughts on it or yeah. the aftermath? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, I I followed the case um, peripherally. I didn't I didn't follow it kind of beat by beat. Um, but I think you know one statistic um, that I saw shared widely. I think I shared it too on social media was that in the decade prior to Gabby Petito going missing. Over 700 indigenous people just in the state of Wyoming had been reported missing in the previous decade, and none of them received not only the same um, media response, but then also law enforcement response and resources and the kind of search for Gabby Petito that happened, which, you know, Gabby Petito and her family deserved. So it's not a matter of that, but it's an issue that that doesn't happen when indigenous women and children and two-spirit relatives also go missing. And so, you know, a really common story um, among Native communities is that oftentimes family members and community members have to look for um, missing relatives themselves because law enforcement, um, the law enforcement response is so lacking. And so I think the broader takeaway of the Gabby Petito story is that over and over again, there is a very narrow type of victim that our broader media culture and landscape is interested in. You know, Gwen Ifill called it the missing white girl syndrome, but, you know, it's white women who are young, who are heterosexual, who are from, you know, middle class backgrounds. And if Petito hadn't checked all those boxes, arguably, um, her case wouldn't have gotten the media attention that it would have. And I think that that also um, keeps people like Gabby Petito less safe. You know, nobody was interested in what was happening to her when there were clear signs of domestic violence. People only became interested in her case and her story 
after she was missing and after she was dead, you know, and and so that doesn't keep Mm -hmm. women, even women who have privilege within that context, like it doesn't keep those women more safe, because instead of having a national conversation about, okay, well, what are the early signs of dating violence before it gets to a stage where it's lethal or where it's life threatening? You know, we're having internet slews talk about where they think the fiance has gone to. You know, it's sort of this, um, it, it's not focusing on things that help future potential um, survivors or victims. And so I, I think that, you know, there's sort of this, there's a way that when we tell these stories that are very grounded in cultures of rape and abuse, we don't tell those stories that elicit and educate like how those systems function. Oftentimes, the way we tell those stories actually mask how those systems function. And I would say that that's definitely true with the Petito case. Yeah, and I agree with you. I, I hope that some of the lessons learned, um, I'm not a cop, but I I hope law enforcement learn some lessons from that as far as, you know, how they handle those situations and how they identify those situations, because it, it, it seems like it, like it was very, very preventable. But you're right that the, the attention didn't come until it became a, a murder mystery for the, you know, the true crime community. Yeah. And I think we also have to really think about like, like violence against women as entertainment. <laughs> like, I think a lot of times, like, you know, the fixation on the murder of women as entertainment is billed as helping raise awareness about how violence against women works and it's preventative and things like that. And I don't know. I, I think that that deserves to be um, questioned. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, mm-hmm. I don't see how the fascination with these very specific crimes is creating a public that has a broader understanding of, you know, how things like controlling behavior and jealousy within a relationship can escalate over time, right? You know, like, I I just think that some of those things that are really, you can kind of think of as literacy, like, you know, red flags for intimate partner violence and understanding about how intimate partner violence works is kind of a literacy issue where a lot of people don't understand it, you know, and understandably so, because it's not really talked a lot about in mainstream culture. And I I don't understand how the fascination with these specific murders helps people understand better how those things work. So they can understand it if it's something that they're in or that they've survived and name that experience, or also how people can identify it in supporting, you know, folks that they love, you know, instead of saying, you know, a lot of times I think women um, who are in those relationships often even get gaslit, not just by abusers, but by people who are around them who, you know, are used to normalizing that kind of behavior. Right. And you see it a lot even with with families that just don't want to believe that their loved ones are in the situations that they're in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen it, you know, working in the space for a long time. I've seen it time and time again. I I wanted to touch on you, you, you. You said the phrase that their families and their two spirit families and it reminded me, I so on your your socials, you identify as two spirits, indigenous, LGBTQ plus woman. And I just, I always want to take any opportunity to have to educate not only the listeners but myself because I like when I saw that I, I didn't, I I don't quite know what it means, and I don't quite understand it, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. So, so while we have you here, it'd be awesome if you if you wouldn't mind kind of explaining what that means. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the term two-spirit is an umbrella term in, in two ways. One, it's an umbrella term for the hundreds of indigenous nations that exist within the United States that have our own unique histories, culture, language around what, you know, in Western culture, we now call LGBTQ plus folks. And so, you know, the language for those, um, for those folks within our traditional societies, the cultural roles are different for every tribe. So two-spirit is an umbrella term in that sense, where a lot of indigenous nations not only have their own terminology and own language, but also own their own traditions around that. And it's also an umbrella term in that it covers um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, plus um, Native folks. So it's really, it's an umbrella term for the LGBTQ plus Native American community. And it has a really important history. In the 90s, anthropologists were using this term that was oppression word for um, a kept boy or a boy prostitute. And it was uh, a term that they took and applied when they were in, you know, like their anthropology texts um, discussing two-spirit, specifically um, what we would call now trans women who are Native American. And it was a derogatory term. And it was a term that a lot of um, Native elders and leaders saw as derogatory. And so a group of two-spirit elders got together um, in the early 90s, you know, people like Beverly Little Thunder. And decided, okay, we need to come up with a term that isn't derogatory, that comes from our community, and that shows the important and unique cultural role that we have in our community. And so they came up with the term two-spirit. And I think one thing that's important for non-Native folks to know is that it is a term that is used, again, for Indigenous LGBTQ plus folks. And I see some folks who are non-Native really that term resonates with them or they feel seen with that term in a way that maybe, um, you know, mainstream or Western language doesn't encapsulate. And what's important to know about that term is that it is connected to the unique history of um, violence and colonization that Native American people have experienced. And so if you're not Indigenous, it is not an appropriate term to use. And what I always encourage people to do is that, you know, homophobia and transphobia are not, you know, they aren't constants throughout human history. And there are a lot of um, cultures from across the world that have um, have histories that predate <laughs> homophobia and transphobia. And to go back into mm. your own culture and to try and find find those teachings and that validation there. Well, that's super interesting. I, I'm, I'm always I'm fascinated by the native culture in, in general. How is Throughout uh, the the non-native people in America, over time we've seen you know I, it's still not where it needs to be, but we, I think we've seen great progress in people understanding the L LGBTQ plus community. Do you see the same thing in the native culture? I don't I don't know how it's how it's received within within that culture. Yeah, I mean, I would say that because of colonization. There can be a lot of homophobia within our communities. And so, and at the same time, our communities are also making progress. So, like my tribe, Cherokee Nation, um, within Cherokee Nation's court systems, it recognizes gay marriage. And so, 
Yeah. And so I think that our tribes and our indigenous nations, there are ways that homophobia certainly still and transphobia certainly still shows up in real and concrete ways. And um, I think that, you know, our tribes through the process of decolon, what people call it decolonization, but a lot, you know, we're doing a lot of work around, you know, reclaiming language, reclaiming other cultural practices, and I think restoring the role of two-spirit people um, within our communities is part of that process. And there are a lot of different ways um, that that work is also happening. Well, that's great. Uh, uh, sorry to dig so much into your personal life. I'm just fascinated by all the the, the culture there. I, I want to, as far as your background goes, you're also the founder of an organization called Force. Mm-hmm. Can can you talk about that organization and and what y'all do? Yes. So, um, Force Upsetting Rape Culture um, was an organization I co-founded in 2010 uh, with a woman named Hannah Brancato. And the vision for the organization was um, to create a culture of consent. So one example that we did is um, the Pink Loves Consent prank that we talked at the front of the show. And then we also um, worked on building a culture of support for survivors. And so one of the projects we did was a quilt called the Monument Quilt which was a collection of stories from survivors of rape and abuse that we would then put out in public spaces to create um, a public culture of support for survivors. Well, that's great. You've done so much amazing work outside of the podcast, but I want to get into the podcast, This Land. Uh, So you debuted the show in 2019. I know now it's a Crooked Media production. They're the same uh, uh, production company that puts out Pod Save America and other great shows. How did that, how did the podcast come to be? Was that your idea? Were you approached by Crooked Media? Did you start out independent? How did this land come to be? Yeah, um, it has a really, I think, unique uh, podcasting origin story. So I, I was actually, I was approached by Crooked. So I had written an opinion piece that was published in the Washington Post about a Supreme Court case um, that was then called um, Murphy and then became a different case called McGirt. Um, But it was about the reservation status of a tribe here in Oklahoma, uh, Muscogee Nation, and had implications um, for a total of five tribes and our reservation status, including my and Cherokee Nation. And so I wrote about the case in the days before the oral arguments for the Supreme Court. And Crooked's director, I think director of development at that time, um, read it and thought that it would make a great documentary podcast series, uh, which I had never thought of. (laughs) And they contacted Mm -hmm. me and then the rest is history. So I would definitely say, you know, at the time, my journalism and writing was really focused on print and online pieces. And so it was a big shift to shift to uh, podcasting and really writing for people to listen. You know, I think that people absorb information so much differently when they're hearing it versus reading it. So the learning curve was intense, but it was it was a it was a great opportunity. And then and since since I've started, I've uh, completely fallen in love (laughs) with podcasting and with audio (laughs) journalism. It's nice not to have that uh, that word count limit, I'm sure, when you're writing your podcast script compared to writing an article. 
Yeah, and I think also just the way that online journalism works, especially in the age of social media and click stuff, is that, you know, oftentimes people don't read even the entire article. Um, And, you know, some articles have a shelf life, but often, you know, people are reading your articles for a few days. And we we live in a very fast-paced media culture where there's a really high turnover. Mm -hmm. And... What I love about podcasting is that you have so much time with the listener, you know, with season one and now with season two. With both seasons, we have hours, about eight hours with the listener to really let uh, these complicated court cases, but also this important story and history unfold over time in a way where I just don't think you could tell the same story in print. You know, it just is too much information. Um, and so I think that that's what's what's awesome about the the medium of podcasting. And then I think what also is really cool is that, you know, there are so many important, whether it's, you know, political leaders of Muskogee Nation or, you know, in the second season when we're talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act, you know, the families that have been impacted by these custody cases. Um, I think it's so different for people to be able to actually hear the voices of the folks that you're talking about and for them to be able to express themselves in their own words, which you can always quote people in a print article, but I just feel like it's so different to actually to be able to hear someone speak the way that you can in podcasting. And so I, 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 I really appreciate it. And I think just too among, you know, indigenous cultures, I feel like there's a way that we've always had this tradition of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And as a way of sharing information. And so and so I, I just love I love the way that you can tell a story differently. You know, it's just so different than print journalism where you you try to kind of just tell people everything right up front, you know, like, here's my point, And right. then I'm gonna and then it's gonna unfold. Whereas like with podcasting, it's like you're you're kind of inviting people on more of a journey um, and, and, and into more of a story. Well, and you've you've taken us on a hell of a journey. Um, I listened to season one. I haven't started, been able to start season two yet, uh, but but real quickly, explain to us season one, which was the the Murphy case you mentioned, mm-hmm. the Sharp versus Murphy Supreme Court case. Um, so, can you explain what season one was about, and if people are going to tune into this land and listen, what they can expect? Absolutely. So, in season one, um, we covered a Supreme Court case that was about the reservation status of Muscogee Nation, and it ended up now uh, setting the precedent that that determined the reservation of now six tribes in Oklahoma, um, including my own uh, Cherokee Nation. And so, that case started in a really interesting place. It started in uh, with a murder um, in a rural part of Oklahoma in 1999. And so, a Muscogee citizen named Patrick Murphy was convicted of first-degree murder for the murder of another Muscogee citizen named George Jacobs. Um, and he was sentenced to death. Um, he then started appealing that conviction. And as death penalty appeals go, it was a very complicated appeals process. It went on for years. And one of the issues among many that he raised in his appeals was that um, Oklahoma actually didn't have jurisdiction to um, convict him of murder, to even prosecute him, because the crime had occurred on the reservation of his tribe, Muscogee Nation. And Oklahoma argued that that reservation hadn't existed for over a century. And so that central question went to the Supreme Court, which was basically, had Congress ever gotten rid of, 
it, the technical legal term is disestablished, but basically said, hey, you know, this reservation that was established by a treaty no longer exists. And what's interesting is that Congress never did that. And it's pretty clear if you go through the statutes <laughs> that they never did. Mm-hmm. But Oklahoma had just acted like for over a century that all these reservations in the eastern half of the state just hadn't existed. And so the real, real question before the Supreme Court was, were they going to follow the letter of the law and apply it as written? Or were they going to come up with some kind of new test to decide whether or not a reservation exists to satisfy the settled expectations of the state of Oklahoma and the non-native residents in the state? And so what I think is historic about the McGirt decision, so it actually became a different a different case from Oklahoma that settled the question um, for some complicated procedural reasons. But what happened with the McGirt verdict that came in July of 2020 is that the Supreme Court um, said, you know what, like when it comes to treaties, when it comes to indigenous land rights, the law is the law as written, and we're not going to invent new rules as this court to wiggle our way out of the law. And that isn't profound <laughs> legally, and it shouldn't be. But so right. often the U.S., you know, the U.S., I think what's ironic about land and treaty rights for indigenous nations is that the U.S. created a whole legal mechanism to take indigenous lands. Congress could have passed a law that disestablished our reservations, and that would have been legal, you know, against against our wishes. Um, mm-hmm. But it didn't. And so, so what happens so often is that the U.S. created this legal system to to take indigenous land and that legal system still preserves rights for indigenous nations you know in large part due to the activism and the work of our ancestors and then the u.s turns around and doesn't even follow its own laws and this case i think is the supreme court kind of drawing a clear line that you know we're not going to do that as a court we're being asked to do that as a court and you know we we said no and so that's that's kind of the story of um, the first season. Um, I also talk about my own family history. So my ancestors signed Cherokee Nation's um, removal treaty. Um, and it was a controversial uh, decision that they made. They were actually assassinated um, for that decision. I talk about the early kind of history of Oklahoma and um, this period of history called allotment. And so, and so it has both that history of kind of where we got to, um, and that to this Supreme Court case, and then also follows the story, the story of the case. Yeah, it's such an incredible story, and it's so multi-layered. Definitely recommend checking it out. And as I said, I haven't, I haven't listened to season two yet. I know it's the, I'm going to butcher these names, but the Brackeen v. Holland case. Did I say those names right? Yes, absolutely. The case, the Supreme Court case, well, right now the case is waiting on the steps of the Supreme Court, but uh, Brackeen v. Holland started about four years ago when a white couple living in the suburbs of Dallas wanted to adopt a Native American toddler um, that they had been fostering. But a federal law said that that child should stay with a Native home and that child's tribe, Navajo Nation had identified a Navajo family that was willing to adopt the kid. And so um, the court started working towards moving that child to that Navajo home. And Chad and Jennifer Brackeen did two things. One is that they um, intervened in the custody case and they were fighting for custody of the kid and actually in state court. um, They had some extraordinary help in family court. Actually, the attorney general of Texas 
And this big corporate law firm called Gibson Dunn um, came swooped into state court, uh, to family court to help them win custody. And then at about the time, the same week that it became clear um, that they would actually win custody of this toddler, they filed a federal lawsuit saying that this federal law, the Indian Child Welfare Act, violated their constitutional rights um, because it made it harder or it threatened that they wouldn't be able to adopt this child. But again, they did adopt. And so um, that lawsuit was first filed in 2017. Um, it's a complicated lawsuit. Other um, non-Native families uh, that were fostering Native children and wanted to adopt them joined. Other states joined. It wound its way through the federal court system. And it's now waiting on the steps of the Supreme Court. And many Supreme Court watchers um, kind of assume for a bunch of different reasons that the Supreme Court will um, will hear it. And so it, there's a lot at stake in the case. Um, not only the future of this law that was created in the 70s um, to prevent family separation in Native communities, which has a very, very long history in the United States. But what is also at stake is um, Native rights and is the legal structure um, that defends the sovereignty and the rights of Indigenous nations. Because the plaintiffs are making some unique and very, very specific legal arguments that if the Supreme Court upholds in the arena of ICWA, if it was applied to other areas of um, what's called federal Indian law, whether it's land rights or... Um, hunting and fishing rights, tribal self-governance, gaming rights, it could have a disastrous impact in those areas too. And so so there's a lot, a lot on the line um, with this one case. Yeah. And you did a ton of research in this case. This is such a, well, I know from the first season uh, that all of your work is very well researched. I read that you you filed over 60 FOIA requests for this one and reviewed over 10,000 court documents. Uh, so I can't wait to listen to it and, and see where it goes. I can't recommend season one enough. Her name is Rebecca Nagel. The podcast is called This Land. Check it out. I guarantee you it'll be your next true crime binge. Thanks so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate you coming on and, and humoring me with all of my questions about <laughs> about your background and culture. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, both seasons, season one and two, are available to binge anywhere you get your podcast. So check it out. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.